I want to welcome you back this evening as we uh, go through continuing our series called God's Amazing Grace. As I alluded to this morning, we've been talking about that through this year. And this series is really about taking some stories of God's people through the Old Testament and eventually the New and how God's grace looked in different manifestations. And so we're going to open our Bibles and look at that and try to learn some lessons from his people. Uh, the book of Romans says that everything which was written in the past was written to teach us uh, that we might learn some other things. And that's a good way to grow wiser. I want to ask you tonight, have you ever really, really dropped the ball? Have you ever messed up pretty big? Uh, when we talk about God's grace, it's always good to know that when we do mess up, uh, His grace covers us. But tonight's story is about a story that directly involved His grace and how His people rejected. If you're following along, you want to turn to the book of Numbers, chapter 13. It's a, a story of failure, the story of a lack of faith, a lack of trust, a lack of obedience to the Lord. Ultimately, they failed to take hold of what God gave to them, uh, just actually put into their laps that he told them, uh, here it is, it's yours. They didn't believe that. And we can learn a lot more from their, their failures and hopefully uh, avoid the same pitfalls ourselves. To set up the story, <clears throat> the story of the uh, spies that go out to explore the promised land in Numbers chapter 13, and they were called to explore the land of promise. This is chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites from each ancestral tribes and one of its leaders. Now, this is the, the point. Every lesson that we do has sort of a grace focus. And if, if God's unearned gift is right here, the promised land, the, the, the land that I have promised to them and which I am giving them. It wasn't anything that they had done to earn it. It wasn't anything, in fact, Scripture will go on to say that when you go into this land long after they had wandered, that you were going into a land with wells that you did not dig and vineyards that you did not plant, a, a whole sort of land that was just full of blessings that they, they did nothing to attain. But we're very early, long before that, will come to fruition so at the Lord's command, Moses sent them out from the desert of Paran. All of them were leaders of the Israelites. And this is important because what we're talking about tonight, we look at the, the difference. In, and a Sunday night crowd pretty well knows the story of the spies and going into Canaan and the, their, their report and Caleb and Joshua and all that. But, but it's very important to understand that it was the leaders that influenced the people. The ten who influenced uh, in a negative way and the two which tried to influence them in a positive way. And hopefully we can uh, learn from the two instead of the ten. So he lists all of the, the names of the spies. Verse 16, these are the names of men Moses sent to explore the land. Uh, Moses, Moses gave Hashia, son of Nun, the, the name Joshua. Just so clarify when you go down there and read, don't, don't read the name Joshua. You understand the Hashia is talking about the same guy. When Moses sent them to explore Canaan, he said, Go up through the Negev onto the, into the hill country and see what the land is like, whether the people who live there are strong or weak, few or many, 
What kind of land do they live in? Is it good or bad? What kind of towns do they live in? Are they unwalled or fortified? How is the soil? Is it fertile or poor? Uh, Are there trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. So these are the instructions that the the heads of Israel are given, these representatives that are sent out to go explore, to go give a report, to do some due diligence, we might call it in modern terms. Um, And these seem to be young men. And their scouting report basically is... Give us, tell us about the quality of the land. Tell me about what it produces, and tell us about the quality of the people. More specifically, are they big, strong guys, or or sort of puny types? Uh, that will be important to know as we try to take it from them. So uh, then we get into the key text tonight, which is Numbers chapter thirteen, verses twenty-one uh, through chapter fourteen, about midway through there. Uh, most of the chapter, in fact. And this is where we get a lot of back and forth as we look at um, what their response was to God's gift, which he was trying to give them. And I think it's interesting that sometimes God tries to give us his grace, and we don't respond exactly in the way he would plan. If you're in Numbers chapter 13, follow along. I'm going to read Starting verse 21. So they went up and they explored the land from the desert of Zin as far as Rehob toward Lebo Hamath. They went up from the Negev, came to Hebron, where Helmon, Shishal, and Talmai, all descendants of Anak, had lived. Hebron had been built there, had been built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. When they reached the valley of Eschol, they cut up a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes. I'm not sure what kind of grapes you get when you go to Dylan's. Um, Christy usually gets some red grapes, and, and, you know, they're usually sufficient, but not usually as they describe here. Uh, they cut off a branch bearing a single cluster of grapes, and two of them carried it on a pole between them, along with some pomegranates and figs. Uh, these are some good-sized grapes, folks. I think the land is plenty fruitful. That place was called the Valley of Eschol because of the cluster of grapes and the Israelites the, that the Israelites cut off there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They should be excited, right? They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them, to the whole assembly, and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses the account... We went to the land into which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit, but the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We saw descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. God wanted them to take the land. Uh, in fact, if you read this account from Deuteronomy, what's, what's interesting to me is um, in this account, in chapter 1 of Deuteronomy, verses 19 through 27, uh, the plan is slightly different, see if you hear it. 
As the Lord God commanded us, we sent out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful desert that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. And then I said to you, you reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your fathers, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I collected twelve of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came into the valley of Eskal and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. I'm not sure if it jumps out to you or not, but but God says in Deuteronomy chapter 1, at least as in that accounting of it, go up and take the land. And they reply with, eh, let's mull it over a little bit. Let's do some due diligence. Let's think about it. Let's go explore it. Now, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with due diligence. The request to go explore it was not unreasonable. But God gave them the land, and they needed to think about it. They needed to explore it. It wasn't God who needed them to explore it. He knew what the land was. He knew what the people were. He told them, it's yours. Go get it. But their exploration gave them the opportunity to do something that God's people do well. That is to think about it. Whenever my children will ask me something, and they want a yes or a no, and I don't want to give them an answer right then, so I'll say, let me think about it. Sometimes we do that with the Lord. We do, Israel did. And, again, I'm not completely attacking that, but when God says to do something and you pause and say, let let me think about it. How about we study it a little bit more? How about we, we need a, you know, we ought to get a committee of people to address this issue. What we're really doing is delaying our obedience instead of, just obedience. Another way to say it is analysis leads to paralysis. And uh, I'm not jibing anyone wearing neck braces or anything like that. Okay? Just don't overthink it. Okay? It's just fine to think about things, but don't overthink them and don't underthink them. Think about them and then act. Understand me clearly. I'm not saying it's wrong to think about things, but it can hold us up. It can keep us from doing what God intends for us to do. I never caught that Deuteronomy chapter 1 before. But when you read it, it seems like God was saying, hey, go, here's the land. Go get it. And they're like, well, let's go do a scouting report. All right, go do a scouting report. And what they find? Good land. And what they also find? Lots of other people had already figured that out. And they were going to have to take them if they wanted to take the land. 
In my estimation, this reminds us of sort of a lesson, that there are sort of two approaches to, towards God's commands, okay? The first is, let me figure it out, and then let me do it. Now, now God doesn't chastise them or punish them for wanting to send a scouting report. He, In fact, back into our key text tonight, he affirms the method, this is fine. They haven't been disobedient yet, but again, they're... It's sort of got, here's the command, go take it. And the action is in their hands. And it's the in-between part of these two things. You know, how, how big is the gap in your life between God's command and your obedience? That's why I think Jesus says it's important to be like little children. Because little children, well, most little children, until they get to be teenagers, my apologies again. They sort of have a pretty narrow gap. You say it, and they do it. But for some reason, the, the older we get and the more our brains develop, the gap gets bigger between the command and the obedience. And that's a problem. Again, not because thinking over it is bad, but because it delays our obedience. And the trust factor is just saying, okay, if God said it, I'll do it. If God said it, I'll do it. Uh, I mean, a lot of my job is trying to get people to say, okay, God said it, and now I'll, I'll do it. I mean, whether it's being baptized into Christ, whether it's repenting of sin, uh, whether it's jumping in and saying, I'll lead, it's the, the gap between the command and the obedience, okay? So the first thing is, the first approach is I'm going to stand over here on the command and I'm going to think about it and study it and have classes on it and think about it some more and maybe discuss it in a small group and and give it all of the intense analysis I can while never quite getting to the action step. The second approach is um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to obey God and I'm going to figure out all the details. I don't know how that works, but God said go take the land, so here we go. Um, back to you all, and I appreciate the way you're so intensely looking down. I know you're studying the lesson. I appreciate that. Um, scrolling through your phone and such, it's great. Um, the one thing that I do love about this age group is your tendency, uh, and this is sort of a biological thing, but please don't take offense to it. Your brain's not fully developed yet, okay? So your brain, it doesn't have the full ability to think yourself out of doing something. It tends to be kind of all gas and no brake, okay? God says, do it. All right, here we go. That's what I love about youth ministry. Hey, guys. We're going to go paint this house and we're, oh yeah, all right, okay. You ever painted a house before? Uh-uh, but we're going to do it. Okay, good. Okay, because they don't have to think about it. That's just between you and me. It's different with the rest of them. They have to think about it. Um, I I'm finished a, a book a few weeks ago called The Five-Second Rule. And it's a really cool story about 
how a woman who was just going through a lot of terrible things and her business, her husband had a business that was failing. They were on the edge of bankruptcy. She had a lot of other personal problems. And one night before bed, she was staying up way too late watching TV. And she was watching, somehow got to watching a rocket launch or something. And she just was watching the countdown. For some reason, that fixated in her mind. And, and she just got in her mind, five, four, three, two, one, go. And so she determined the next thing she had to do was she was going to look for a job. And, and uh, she had been putting that off. She had been delaying. She, all the reasons she didn't want to do it, the job she didn't want, da 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 da, da. And she decided, next morning, tomorrow, five, four, three, two, one, go. I'm going to do it. And so that's sure enough, that's what she did. Five, four, I mean, she was laying in bed, the alarm went off, she went, five, four, three, two, one, go. She got up, and she, she began to practice that principle, eating right, going to the gym, uh, being the type of worker you should be, uh, in her marriage with her kids, five, four, three, two, one, go. And she, she said, at first, I didn't understand it, but she started in the book, she shares a lot of research, and it just has to do with the fact that as human beings, we tend to think our thing, think ourselves out of doing what we should do. Okay? So, there is an element of faith where you say, here's what God says, immediately I'm going to do it. And I'm going to figure the rest of it out. God will give us the opportunity, he'll bring us to the opportunity. In Israel's case, he put the opportunity in front of him and said, here you go, go get it. But... At some point, you got to trust him enough. At some point, you got to say, okay, I'm going. The land was awesome. About verse uh, 25 or so. Man, this, this land is, makes me want to go there. It is really, really that good. We went into the land you sent us. And it does flow with milk and honey. And here is the fruit. But... This is when they have to start thinking about it. And you know, I mean, here, here are these guys carrying, carrying a single cluster of grapes on a pole. And, and they're, I'm just imagining walking back and thinking, Ugh, but the people, all of the ites, you know, all of the ites people that were going to be a threat to them. And they begin to do something. They begin to fear. In addition to overthinking it, they begin to get fearful. It's awesome land. There's milk, there's honey, there's huge clusters of grapes. There's pomegranates and figs and all sorts of good stuff. But in addition to being an awesome land, there's awful enemies. There's all the ites. And one thing all the ites have in common is they're pretty strong. And not only are they physically strong, but they live in fortified cities that have walls. They have set down roots and they intend to stay. And leaving will be a hard fight. They gave up the battle before they even entered the battle. Most opportunities that God gives us are barricaded by obstacles. And most of those obstacles are chief in your head. They overthought and overthought about the size of the people, about the strength of the cities, and about the number of enemies that they would have to remove. They looked at God's provision of grace, which was, and they just said, it's too good to be true. I mean, it's awesome, but apparently God didn't do his, 
investigative research well enough. Because if he had, he wouldn't have sent us here. Because all these people, look how big they are in the descendants of Anak and the rest of it. And they begin to talk themselves out of it. Trusting requires doing. Trusting requires doing. You can say you trust God, but until you do what he says, you don't trust him. So don't overthink it. James chapter 4, verse 17, the brother of Jesus says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is an exciting place. It's an exciting provision of, of unmerited favor of the, of the land. But all they want to do is leave. They're not excited at all. They would rather wander and be homeless. They'd rather dream about Egypt than partake of the grace that God had in mind. So we get to the report. Chapter 13, verse 30 and following. Caleb and Joshua had faith, but the people yielded to fear. If you're following along in the Word, chapter 13, verse 30. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we. And they were spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are, are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we look the same to them. How do people respond? And people are naturally fearful. And any sort of bad news, we tend to lean. The, the bad news has more weight than the good news. Um, past several months, stock markets, you know, past in 2017, stock markets are just going great guns, going gusto. And. And there's always the nervous Nellies. Oh, it's going going too high. We're going to have a crash. Ah, that may happen, okay. But there's just always, pessimism always has more weight than optimism. And it's true in the financial world, it's true in the business world, it's true in the church world. People are naturally fearful and want to stay comfortable and want to not move as opposed to doing things which require getting out of getting uncomfortable moving forward that night all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud all the israelites grumbled against moses and aaron and the whole assembly said to them if only we had died in egypt or in this desert why is the lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword our wives and children will be taken as plunder wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader who will take us back to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly, gathered in front of them. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes 
and said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and he will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. We see, again, two very different approaches toward this promise. Caleb begins by quieting the people. Um, he says, hush. You know, as the, the Hebrew word could be used, in, you know, quiet down, quiet down. And maybe he was trying to reduce the noise, the audible noise of the community crying and weeping and so forth. Maybe there was shouting, maybe there was anger. Uh, all of those are common with fear. But it could have also been trying to quell some of the noise, some of the fear within their hearts. You say, we should, they, we should by all means go up and take possession, for we will surely overcome it. I love the first response. If God's given it to us, we should. His courage was not in their ability. You notice he doesn't say, you know, because we're so awesome, we should go do that. He says, if the Lord's pleased with us, we're going to go do that. In fact, he says we should do that. The others focused on their own might, you know, and they put them their The question is, was their faith in God or was their faith in themselves? Response number two, uh, if response number one was believe it, and that was Caleb and Joshua's response. And then their response, the response of the ten and the people, most of the people, is that it is unbelievable. It is, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. It is unbelievable. The land is too big, the people are too big and too strong, and we are too small and weak. They focused on who was against them instead of who was with them. They yielded to fear instead of faith. Um, if they sang the song tonight, it would be, I am afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me. And we sing that, and that's a fun song for the kids to sing and adults too. But do you live that? I am not afraid. It's much easier to be afraid. Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? The psalmist understood what Caleb and Joshua knew. Maybe Caleb and Joshua were afraid. Maybe they, they saw the size of the people, they saw the, the, the obstacle in front of them, but they saw even greater the power and the might of Almighty God. <clears throat> the people respond with the natural response whenever there's negative news, whining. 
They raised their voices, they cried and they wept, they blamed the leaders, they had self-pity. Why did God do this to us? What about our wives and our children? Woe is us. In fact, they even have a mutiny. You know, we need, we need a different leader. We need somebody who understands the goodness that we left. And see if we can plead our case and get back into Egypt where we had it so good. You notice how forgetful they are? Fear has a way of making us forget. Well, then the leaders do what good leaders do. They respond in verses 5 and 6. It says they fell to their faces, which is a posture of prayer. Uh, again, they assume the posture of holy fear to the Lord. They mourn, they tear their clothes, not for themselves, but for the fearful and faithless people. They just see, the, they see God has given this to them, and they are effectively slapping his hand away. They don't want it. They make one last plea. Hey, the land is good, you guys. But more than that, God is good. He's going to lead us to victory. I mean, this is all mind-blowing to me. I mean, don't you think in their mind, maybe at some point they said, Hey, remember the sea we walked through on dry ground? Did you guys forget that? May, they, may we not forget that his blessings and his grace are cert- is certainly good, but it really it's because he is good. And they say, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not reject his grace. Do not fear the enemy. The Lord is with us. Their largest enemy is not in the promised land. Their largest enemy is right here. And they're succumbing to it, unfortunately. The Lord forgives. However, there's still going to be fallout. So they go through all this, and we're about in verse 10. The whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I've performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. And I will make you into a, greater, into a nation greater and stronger than they. This is interesting. When God shows up, this is a God shows up kind of moment, although not in a good way. That God has had enough with their faithlessness and their fear Especially, in fact, of all he's done for them. Why don't they believe me? They didn't take God at his word. They, you know, There are two types of examples when you're doing a lesson. There's positive examples and there's negative examples. You know, everything that was written in the past was teach us this is a really good negative example. A good example of what not to do, in other words. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 says of this moment, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. Uh, rather, with most of them, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. God was not pleased with them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. There's a reason we do not 
recognize or know the names of Shemua, Shaphat, Ilgal, Patai, Gadil, Gadi, Amil, Sether, Nagbi, and Gul. Even though, you know, least of which is, it's hard to say all those names. Uh, Joshua and Caleb is much easier. But the real reason they don't have any legacy is because it disappeared long ago, lost in the wilderness. They gave up on God. God gave up on them. So Moses, Moses tries to mediate the situation. He says, Lord, and this is true humility of what Moses does. He pleads the case of these hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. He says, first of all, Lord, you have a reputation to uphold. If you destroy this nation, the Egyptians and all their foreign gods are going to mock you. They're going to say, well, what would you lead them out there for? They're going to refer to you as incompetent and unable. And then he says, secondly, this is unlike you, Lord. You're, you're not this type of God. You're better than this. You're a... Uh, patient, you're loving, you're forgiving, be you, Lord. You know, in the modern, it would say, you do you, God. You do you. You be who you are. Your nature is patient and loving and forgiving. And so God, he relents. He says, okay, good point, Moses. I've, I'm going to forgive them. Nevertheless, there's going to be some consequences. Um, they've tested me, I've had enough, and so everybody here is going to have consequences except for Caleb, who had a different spirit and who followed me. The rest of Israel, all of them and their descendants are going to wander and suffer for 40 years and die out. Their bodies, as the, Paul wrote later, will be scattered in the desert. And the ten spies who started all this trouble, they, they started dying immediately of a plague. And then the people, this is, this, to me, this is just incredulous. I just can't believe after God goes through all of this and they realize exactly what they have done and how far they go. This is verse 39. When Moses reported all this to the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up toward the high hill country. We have sinned, they said. We, we will go up to the place the Lord promised. <laughs> but Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? When God told, this is so crazy to me. God told them to take it, and they wouldn't take it. And then God said, all right, that's enough. Don't even bother. And then they're like, uh, okay, we're going to go take it now. It's just crazy. I mean, it's a good thing we never do that today. It's, never, it's not like God ever tells us to do something and we don't do it. Or God didn't tell us not to do something and we do. I mean, that, but these Israelites, whoo, man. <laughs> Moses says, why are you disobeying the Lord's commands? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You will be defeated by your enemies for the Amalekites and the Canaanites you will, fa- will face you there because you have turned away from the Lord. He will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. This is one of those really encouraging verses that you see on Instagram. Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up toward the high hill country, although neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. 
Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. Sometimes I wonder if a better approach with God's people would be reverse psychology. You know, just flip, just start in the beginning by saying, guys, there is no way we can take this land. It's impossible. You know, to which they would reply, oh yeah, well, we'll show you. I don't get it, but there is something stubborn about the human heart. There really is. We'll finish by giving you a takeaway, and that is to keep a what I call a holy however. No matter what happens, no matter where God leads you, no matter what comes your way this week, no matter how much in your mind you think, I can't, it's, it's not possible, I'm not strong enough, I'm not good enough, I, I hope you'll end by saying, however, I trust in the Lord. However, I trust in the Lord. The, ver- the ver- verse that's at the middle of your Bible, Psalm 118, verse 8. In fact, go ahead and turn to the middle of your Bible. Psalm 118, verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And that's a a question I will ask you for tonight and to meditate on this week and to think about. Where is your trust? Your trust in man? Does your trust depend on which party's in office? Who's in the White House? Who's in Congress? Your trust depend on who's in charge at work? Your trust depend on you? You put your trust in yourself. Bible warns against this. I know it's popular. Trust your heart, follow your heart and all of that. But the Bible speaks clearly against it. Don't trust in man. And I'm not just talking about other people, but certainly chief among them, yourself. If you're following along, Psalm 37, verses 3 and following. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. May we put our trust in the Lord, no matter what the news stories are this week, no matter what happens in the culture, no what ha- not even what happens in our families or in our personal lives, may we trust in the Lord and do good. May we learn the lesson well from Caleb and Joshua. Not to trust in ourselves, our own might, our own strength, but may we trust in him. And, and especially in those moments of grace where he gives us the opportunity, may we not forget to take hold of it. First John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yes, world's bad place, bad stuff happens all the time. Um, as it has almost since the beginning. But do not be fearful, 
but instead be faithful in your trust of the Lord. Greater is he who's in you than he who is in the world. Christ is our ultimate however. We sin however. Uh, we, we've all rebelled from God however. Uh, we've all fallen short however. Just like the promised land, I guess Christ is the truer and greater promise God gave him to us. Not because of anything that we did, but by everything he did. And may we learn the lesson well that they forgot. May we not reject his grace. May we not reject the final, last, greatest gift of grace given to us. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. May we believe that, may we trust that, and may we act in such a way that we believe it. May we hold on to a holy however in our lives and in our hearts. Tonight, if you do not know the promise, not the promised land, but the promised lamb, I may gently remind you that you are not ready to enter the eternal land. His hope, uh, your hope, is tied greatly and closely to his. And so if you are not ready to enter eternity, may you take hold of the promised lamb. You can do that tonight. We'll be glad to help you. And if you have begun your journey with Christ, but you've wandered away, you've let your heart become captive to fear, and been taken over by your enemy, uh, you can repent of that. You can turn your heart back to Christ, and we'll be glad to help you with that as well. Whatever needs you might have, if you have one, please come forward. I'll pray with you and for you as together we stand and sing.